Welcome. Welcome, welcome to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. It's National Compliment Day. So I have to say, your checker shirt is looking especially lovely today. Avi Wolfman Arendt. <laughs> is it is it national um, fake compliment? No, day? it's there, a real there's compliment. There's no way you really like this shirt. I wear this shirt all the time. It's the plainest shirt of all no, time. No, but it, you know it, it it's making you look. Yeah, it's it's working with the eyes. I did there not today. come prepared for a compliment. It's I'll just right. say you're a wonderful person to work with. Thank you. And I, I like the way you think. And I actually so. do think that compliment was genuine because you are genuinely a complimentary person. I am. Thank and you I very much. And I think we compliment each other. We well. do. So different form of compliment. That's yeah, the happy. Expl- explorations and linguistics here. Are we doing a show today? I have we no idea. We are, and we okay. have a lot to talk about, including payphones. Yes, we are going to talk about a new exhibit that looks into sort of like the modern use of the payphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Crimmins has a story about an ex- exhibit at the McGuire uh, Art Museum out yeah. in St. Joe's Way. Then later in the show, end of the show, we're going to talk about the science of spicy food, yeah. which is very I interesting. Like spicy food. Yeah. And it, it, I kind of like spicy Am food one of as those well. People, you think? Are you what? One of those people who loved, you know, because we'll talk about the personality. Some people really traits. make their identity yeah. around spicy food. That's not me, although I do enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like, if you step back and think about it for a second, you're like, wait a second, what why? am I doing? Why do we tolerate this? This is bizarre. Other animals don't do this. Um, uh, and we're we'll also going to be yeah, talking the about the meat of the show uh, today. Yeah, we're going to talk about a, a serious topic: bullying. Yeah, we talked about whether. I mean, it, it's it's. There's a big uptick in the number of reports of bullying in the state of New Jersey. We're going to talk about why people bully, who's more likely to be a victim, and what is happening with young people today um, such that we're dealing with this. We want you to weigh in. Have you been bullied? Have your child been bullied? What has been the school's response? Give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. But first, headlines. Um, a story that caught my eye today, Avi, thousands of records, including state police evidence logs, were deleted by mistake by the Office of Administration under Governor Josh Shapiro. And some of those records have not yet been recovered. Accidentally deleted. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if it was just one keystroke that I, went awry. Probably not. Trying to figure that out, right? Yeah. The Shapiro administration, they said it was human error. And mm. while... Majority of the records have been restored. Some have not. And it's unclear at this point if the remainder will be recovered. The mistake has impacted two software programs um, that the Bureau of Forensic Services uses to log evidence Mm. and maintain those submissions. Mm. And um, while no physical evidence was lost, some of the evidence logs were and it could impact prosecutions of those cases. So it's a pretty big deal. Sure is. Yeah. Uh, Very curious what Mm -hmm. actually happened. You mentioned this is the Office of Administration. Yes. We talked on the show last week about a pilot program Mm -hmm. to introduce the use of generative AI in state government in Pennsylvania. And this is actually the office in which they were doing it. There's no reason to think that Mm -hmm. that is implicated in what happened here. It's just an interesting connection because they're. You mentioned that human error was to blame. And now automating tasks is a way to potentially eliminate human error just just a side observation just a side. and i gotta mention one person was fired um according to reports uh but this all came out of 2017 when under the wolf administration all the it for the state government had been consolidated into this mm. office of administration to save money mm-hmm. before that all the bureaus all the agencies had their own it department 
Um, mm-hmm. they, the the mm-hmm. Shapiro administration may want to revisit that. I don't know. Interesting. When so, you cut costs, sometimes you incur costs. Stuff happens. Just exactly. So you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to turn now to a story that's been yeah. in the news for a while. You will recall the tragedy last year, about a year ago. Um, Temple mm. Police Officer Christopher Fitzgerald uh, was killed while pursuing a suspect. Um, the, the suspect in the case, his alleged killer, is 19-year-old Miles Pfeffer of Buckingham mm-hmm. Township, Bucks County. Um, and there was a preliminary hearing yesterday afterward. Fitzgerald's family yeah. said that they are seeking the death penalty for Pfeffer, and here is Joel Fitzgerald, father of the slain police officer. And it meets every threshold of the death penalty, and I will tell you that uh, we're waiting with bated breath to hear from the district attorney to see what they decide to do. So he's calling on District Attorney Larry Krasner to seek the death penalty in this case. Krasner has long said that he opposes the death penalty. Uh, Governor Josh Shapiro has been on record saying the death penalty should be abolished in Pennsylvania. It has not been abolished. However, there is a moratorium on the death penalty dating back to 2015. And I'll turn it over now to you, Cherry, for some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this is a a tough case. I mean, because even if, you know, the DA were to give him the death penalty, would that really change anything? But this family, they've lost uh, uh, their son. They've lost a husband, a father. you know, he had children. So yep. this is a really sad case. Um, so we'll see the next court appearance for Pfeffer is February 13th. Yeah. Um, he's waived his right to preliminary hearing. So this will go to trial and they'll probably have to relive a lot of this again. And it's going to be really tough. Yeah, Pennsylvania is in a strange liminal space when it comes to the death penalty. It, it is, is one of the states that, that allows the death penalty by statute. As I mentioned, there's this moratorium. But even before the moratorium, they really weren't using the death penalty. There are many people who are on death row, um, but but executions are incredibly rare. The last Mm -hmm. one was in 1999. There have only been three since the death penalty was reinstated in Pennsylvania in 1976. Um, And in those three cases, the the people accused sort of waived rights of appeal. Mm -hmm. But in cases where people don't do that, it's very, very hard to reach the stage of an actual. uh, It's true. But in cases of police, uh, and I said in a couple of uh, back when Seth Williams was the district attorney, mm-hmm. he would seek the death penalty. Yeah. Now the pressure is on D.A. Krasner, who's against it, to see whether he'll step up in this case yeah. where a police officer uh, was killed in such a tragic yeah. way. Let's go to Delaware now. Yeah, too. it's a somewhat morbid story out of Delaware, Avi. A bill that will allow composting of human bodies hmm. passed the state house yesterday and it now moves on to the Delaware Senate. This bill authorizes a practice called natural organic reduction of remains. It is seen as a much more environmentally friendly alternative to burial or cremation. Yeah. And let me explain the process and maybe TMI. Okay, so sure. cover your ears if you want to hear, but it involves putting a body, put the body into a tank mixed with straw, wood chips or other natural materials for about 30 days. The, it's per- periodically turned and it's mixed with warm air and it reduces that body to soil um, and that soil is given back to the family. Oh. And so, you know, from ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's considered to be cheaper and more environmentally friendly than cremation or, you know, having to buy like, you know, a coffin and, yeah. and, and a burial plot and all that. So and I have been hearing more and more about this concept of green burial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this does fit into that box. And you know, look, in, uh, my initial thought about it is unless it creates some sort of intrusion on other people's space mm-hmm. or traditions. It's a personal decision. I, I, yeah, I don't know why this wouldn't just be a personal decision, what you want to do with your body after you die, as long as it's not 
something again that in, invades someone else's mm-hmm. you know right to liberty um yeah. it, it seems like this should be the ultimate personal choice and the state is allowing as many options as they can by yeah. uh, by if they obviously you have to, to do things to reduce yeah. the spread of disease and there have to be some sort of restrictions put around that but as long again as long as it's not causing any problems for anyone else it seems like it should truly be your choice yeah, um speaking of choices i want to say real quickly mm-hmm. uh the james beard foundation uh, you know they give out these big awards every year uh for best restaurants and best chefs and best drinks and best writing about food. It's like the Oscars of food. They just came out with the nominations, the, the semifinalists. And Phil, let me guess, Philly's Philly on the list. Philly is well represented, Bam. as always. It's actually funny because <laughs> there's a bunch of Philly restaurants and chefs that have gotten uh, semifinalist nods. Uh, nowhere else in Pennsylvania is represented except one Ooh, place in Pittsburgh. Philly over everybody. <laughs> Sorry, suburbs. Uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey did get um, a, a chef on the nominations for Best Chef Mid-Atlantic. So shout out Dane DeMarco of Gas in Maine in Haddonfield, New Jersey. Everything else is Philly. Can I give one special shout out to a place? Because I love that they do this. Every once in a while, the Beard uh, Foundation will just like acknowledge a little mom and pop place that's been around forever. Mm -hmm. Not a place that's new or exciting. It's just been doing something great for a long time. Is Grow Pastries in South Philadelphia, which I walk by all the time, and it has an intoxicating Love smell. Some South Philly <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. It's this tiny little bakery that's been around since 1904, and they are uh, nominated for Outstanding Bakery in the Country. Shout out, Is Grow. And guess what, Michelin star? Uh-oh. Kiss our grits. Philly over everybody. <laughs> Wait, so explain that real quick. Why, you, why are you yelling star. at the Michelin people? <laughs> because the Michelin people, are the they, they are the only ones. They have never had... Philadelphia on their list yes. and we're this big foodie town everybody else shows us love and and you know yeah just another example of the French not getting it Jerry. yeah they don't get it uh, but now we're going to move on to our newsmaker sure and we're talking pay phones and if you are of a certain age like we are we remember them right some of the younger people don't these days, though, a payphone is rare, thanks to the cell phone. Why do you start the segment by calling me old? I don't understand <laughs> I'm that I'm calling myself old, too. Okay, fine. But, You're self-deprecating. I but but payphones, they are a very necessary tool for some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And a new exhibit at the McGuire Art Museum documents the modern-day use of the payphone, how it is viewed by the public, and so much more. WHYY arts and culture reporter Peter Crimmins is a regular here on Studio <laughs> 2. We I'm becoming get, one, yes. We have to give you like a smoking jacket that says like five-timer. Um, he's back with us now to tell us about the exhibit and more. Peter, welcome to uh, Studio 2. It's happy to be here. Uh, you know, speaking of old-timers, uh, in, in doing this, looking at the story, I did find someone online who remembers their mother used to tape a dime on the inside of his lunchbox and send him off to school. So he always had a, a, a way to that call was your, someone. Yeah, that was your emergency money to yeah, call someone. so he had a little dime. Uh, you know, taped wow. to his lunchbox. Can I read an email real quick, sure. Peter, for you? This is from Matt, who says, uh, one of the funniest sign of the times moments I had years ago was when I was in Center City and saw someone standing in a uh, gutted payphone <laughs> enclosure talking on his cell phone. Whoa. <laughs> okay, so that's the state of the payphone, right, Peter? Right, right. Except except not. So there are payphones still in Philadelphia and around the country. And what does this exhibit they're, show you? They're going away fast. Yeah. Um, uh, mm-hmm. A few years ago, it made the news um, that New York pulled out its very last payphone. It used to have like 30,000, mm. you know, and, and now it has none. Um, and uh, Philly ha- right now, uh, 10 years ago, it had about 1,000, judging by the people who keep count of this stuff. Uh, last year, it had about 50. Now it has about 35. 35 so the left. number of payphones are quickly depleting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this... Um, art uh, exhibit at the McGuire Art Museum up in um, 
St. Joe's. It was where the old Barnes Foundation used to be. Yep. Uh, they have this show of uh, a guy, in, a photographer in Rochester. He grew up in Bethlehem, but now he lives in Rochester, has been documenting pay phones for years. Um, and he's, it, it's part of a project to show who uses pay phones mm-hmm. and w- why they're sort of a necessary part of the urban landscape and even the rural landscape. We can get into that also. Yeah, and the exhibit is called Lifelines, and that photographer is Eric Hunsman. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found interesting about your story on this is the modern-day feelings about pay phones. Can you talk he, about that a little bit? It was talks, so interesting. He talks about pay phones as being a social marker, even even a, a non-working pay phone or just a shell of a pay phone. Sort of it, it, in in his thinking, it, it 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 adds to a feeling of a neighborhood, a neighborhood that might be down on its luck, a neighborhood mm-hmm. that might be economically depressed, a neighborhood that might have some problems going on with it. Um, he lives. He recently bought a building. It, this all comes out of Rochester. He recently had to move his business to a new building in Rochester, in a neighborhood where the average median income was about twenty one thousand mm-hmm. dollars. It's a little. It's low More on the economic income, yeah. scale. And he just noticed their payphones are everywhere. Non working payphones, some working payphones, and he started to think payphones, to his mind again, sort of mark a feeling of a neighborhood. Mm. Like that this is the kind of neighborhood where there are payphones. And so this exhibit, it's just pictures of payphones from all over the country. All the pay, a lot in Rochester, because that's where he's based. A lot in Philadelphia, because the guy's in Bethlehem. He grew up in Bethlehem, and he's a big Eagles fan. So (laughs) he's in Philly a lot. But he goes around the country, and he says he has this spidey sense of where payphones are. (laughs) And really, he has a deep sense, uh, an ingrained sense of how cities work and socioeconomically. You get a certain sense of this is the kind of neighborhood where there's a payphone. He drives around until he finds it. So he has payphones in San Diego. He has payphones from Arizona, you know, Tucson. He has payphones in Northern California. Yeah, he just, Florida, you know, he goes everywhere and photographs payphones. What did the photos evoke for you? Like, what was your emotional response? They, uh, well, some of them are in rural places, places where cell signals are bad. And so even if yes. you had a payphone, you can't use it. So um, the really beautiful landscape photography. I mean, some of these pictures, that you, you kind of have to hunt for the payphone. You realize it's about a payphone because so the, you're at an exhibit yeah. about payphones. Yeah. So there must be a phone in there in the picture <laughs> somewhere. Like where's Waldo? But you're yeah. looking at the sky, you're looking at the mountains, yeah. you're looking at the trees. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of times you're looking at urban phones, which are covered in graffiti, which are broken. There's one sign, there's one payphone that he took in Philadelphia, actually. It's on West Gerard Avenue at a gas station. And it has a sign taped to it that says, this payphone works. And it doesn't. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and he was photographing it. And while he was photographing it, people came up to him and said, does this payphone work? He's like, no, it doesn't. Huh. Where's the nearest payphone? They were asking him where they could find a working payphone because they really needed it. That's interesting. And, and that was one of the things that I realized. Some of the most vulnerable people need payphones. And payphones are actually a gathering spot for some folks. Yeah, yeah. He was in uh, Tucson, um, Arizona, where, and he, where a, a, a bunch of people experiencing homelessness set up a camp around a payphone. Mm. And that was the re- reason they put a camp there. And two weeks later, they shut the payphone off. Uh, I have a quick clip from him. Uh, he started interviewing people who are using payphones. And in this exhibit, you can hear people um, talking about it. But but it's it's something, and if we can play the clip now, yeah, let's, it's, let's it's play Eric, Eric, real quick. where Eric, he talks yeah. about the kind of people who use these things. They're calling doctors. They were calling potentially their family, let them know they're alive. The one thing that you hear over and over is they hate how people look at them like they're doing something wrong. We expect now everybody should have a cell phone. So anybody that's using a payphone, they must be doing something wrong. 
That's, yeah. a, that's, that's a perspective a that you would have never yeah, thought. That's interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. That is uh, Peter Crimmins, WHYY's arts and culture reporter. Peter, thanks for joining us on Studio Two. Happy to be here. And the exhibit's called Lifelines. It's at the McGuire Museum. Check it out, folks. Yeah, and coming up next, New Jersey has the highest rates of bullying in schools since it started recording incidents. We talked to the chairperson who released the report and a school psychologist. Coming up next, stick with us. You gotta keep the devil down in the hole. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio Two. Welcome back. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. A new report from the New Jersey Anti Bullying Task Force showed that cases of harassment, intimidation, and bullying are at an all time high in New Jersey schools since the state started recording incidents. This bears the question what's happening with kids these days? And the effects can be dire. In June 2017, 12 year old Mallory Grossman tragically ended her life after what a lawsuit described as relentless bullying, both in person and online. Last year, her New Jersey school district agreed to pay the family $9.1 million. And unfortunately, the list goes on and on. So today we want to hear, why is bullying in schools at an all-time high? Why are kids bullying? And what is being done to prevent more suicides? And with us to discuss this topic is Dr. Jessica Glass-Kandorsky. She is a psychologist and professor at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Jess, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us today is the chairperson of the New Jersey Anti-Bullying Task Force, Shannon Cuddle. Shannon, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you have any questions for our guests or if you want to comment, give us a call. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. And I should also mention there is a national suicide uh, prevention hotline. That number is 988. And we want to make sure that is available for folks um, as we proceed with this conversation. Yeah. And Shannon, I want to start with you. Um, I want you to explain how is bullying defined differently from just regular conflict between kids or a group of kids? And and why don't we focus in on New Jersey here? Sure. So I think that's a great way to start the conversation. So that is actually the definition of bullying. The definition of HIB is something that the state of New Jersey anti-bullying task force looked at while we were reviewing uh, data. Uh, up through the 21-22 school year in the state of New Jersey, and also hearing from community stakeholders and our focus groups in receiving testimony across the state of New Jersey. And one of the concerns that came up was the understanding of the definition of bullying and how bullying is different than regular student conflict. And in the recommendation of our report, we also highlight within the definition asking the state to consider strengthening the definition to include that bullying is something that is repeated over time with intent. And that is different than 
regular student conflict, which would be a disagreement or perhaps teasing in some form of nature. But having that definition of bullying and making sure that not only students and families understand that definition, but our educators, anti-bullying specialists and school administrators understand that bullying and the difference between and how to respond to what is actually HIB or what is actually student conflict and just, in better ways. And just to be clear, can you just put that bullying is what? Bullying is something that happens that is repeated over time. So that is intended conflict over time. So for example, uh, bullying is something where if there was two students that are having conflict with each other with, for bullying, they would be coming at them both online or offline. Um, and that would be something that would be consistent in a documented pattern over time, which would be different than regular conflict. So it'll be one more one sided, though, right? Because one person has to be a victim and one person has to be the bully, right? Well, yes. So the instigator, um, we, we try not to use uh, victimization and uh, perpetrator, but the instigator, um, yes, would be uh, would have intent to be able to repeat it over time uh, within the HIP bullying, harassment, intimidation definition for the state, uh, repeatedly instigate uh, another student. Uh, in a manner or way that is outside of just regular conflict. So Shannon, uh, I just want to give folks a sense of the scope here in New Jersey. Um, what did the data say that you that you have in this recent report? Um, how did it compare to the past data? And what do you think those numbers are telling you? Well, one of the things that the task force that we looked at and looking at the data is that since 2016, which was when the last uh, anti-bullying task force convened and issued their report since 2016 looking at the data there has been an increase not just in harassment intimidation and bullying but as noted through the data that came from the attorney general's office for the state of new jersey an increase in bias-based incidents as well and so looking at that data and looking how it uniformly then escalated coming out of the pandemic into person learning we only saw a dip since the state and since 20 uh, 2009 has been collecting this data for through the anti-bullying bill of rights that the only dip we saw was during the covid pandemic in person mm. and that dip is presumed to be only because of remote learning not that students perhaps were not experiencing forms of hib but lack perhaps of availability to report in other but and saw the increase coming out with the 21 and 2022 data we were able to look at the most recent, an increase nearly 8,000 founded HIP reports and nearly 20,000 investigations were the highest levels that the state has seen. Shannon, can, I ask, can of, I ask you real quick, just though, is that possibly a good sign, the idea, because it could be the case, mm -hmm. right, that people are more likely to identify and report something that in the past they would have swept under the rug. So do you take from this data um, the conclusion that uh, bullying incidents and bias incidents are indeed more common, or do you think they're just being more commonly reported? So I think it's, I think that it's a combination of both, right? So school districts that are collecting the data and that are earnestly reporting the data data to the state of new jersey it's self-reporting but at the same time through that too we know through evidence-based research and a lot of things that we've looked at and feedback that there is an increase and that is directly potentially tied to increased use of social media 
Students five, ten years ago used to be able to walk and leave the situation in an in-person school building, and that was able to get them away from it. Now students have handheld devices, smartphones, other messages, social media apps, and students 24-7, we heard that in, during our focus groups, are not able to escape HIB or not able to escape being able to turn off those devices, be away from those other instigators that may be coming after them. And so in our task force report, we also for the first time look and analyze the use of social media and make recommendations um, to the state and the Department of Education on ways and handling digital citizenship curriculum yeah. and making recommendations of ensuring that folks have the resources they know and how to use social yeah. media safely. And we'll get into some of the prevention methods shortly. If you are just tuning in, we're talking about bullying, specifically a new report out of New Jersey that shows uh, uptick in the reports of hate, intimidation, or bullying incidents in that state. Do you have a question or comment about bullying? Was your child bullied? What was the response from the school? We're speaking with Dr. Jessica Glass-Kandorsky, psychologist and professor at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. And you just heard the voice of Shannon Cuddle, chairperson of the New Jersey Anti-Bullying Task Force. Uh, Jess, I want to bring you into the conversation because you heard about this new report. Lots of incidents being um, talked about, reported to the school. Can you talk a little bit about the psychology of bullying? Um, what it is from a psychological perspective, um, in addition to what we just heard with New Jersey's definition, yeah. Sure. So when you think about bullying at its core, there is what differentiates it from conflict is there is that power imbalance. Mm -hmm. um, and it is something that's persistent, and it usually includes bystanders. So if you're in a school environment and you have individuals that maybe are not getting along or they have social skills deficits, you might see that you start to see those kind of bullying things, especially when there's an audience. That's why in schools it's really important to identify the function of the bullying. Mm. So bullies, well, people who, kids who engage in bullying will do it for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's attention. Maybe they don't have the social skills to get any kind of attention from their peers. So they're engaging in it that way. Mm. So we really want to do restorative type practices in schools where we teach them the skills that they need to function in the school environment or in other environments and less punitive type practices. Quick follow up to you, um, Jess. I, I got to ask about this power dynamic because in your mind, you're thinking one kid is bigger than the other. But when you throw in social media, what does the power dynamic actually encompass? Because it's not just a size thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's usually the repeated act, right? And then the bystanders that give life to it. Mm. So it's really hard sometimes to bully when you don't have an audience. Mm. So in school practices, we try to target the audience and then we try to target the teachers in addition to targeting the individuals that are involved in it. Oh, interesting. So if you generate a culture of respect and pro-social behavior, it's a lot more powerful for a peer to come in if they feel comfortable and they feel safe to have the voice to say, stop. Mm. And then others may follow suit. And so really kind of working on those skills because the power comes from either multiple kids being okay with it, joining in. Same thing with social media. How many likes are you getting? What's going on on Snapchat? 
the involvement of, of the others. Uh, email from Marisol. This is right along those lines. Marisol says, sometimes kids bully because they are following along with the original bully slash abuser just trying to survive the social scene mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's fascinating that perhaps the intervention shouldn't focus solely or maybe even mainly on the the instigator, but the people who are either benignly, blindly, or actively um, standing by. Mm-hmm. So how do you, like, I, I guess, have create an intervention that focuses on the bystanders slash supporters? First, you start with the system of the school. Mm-hmm. So the system's approaches in the school should be one where you work on positive approaches to how you deal with discipline, but also... You have your academic supports, but your social and emotional supports. So we are a culture of respect. We speak to each other this way. And those kind of things are reinforced. And you also target the teachers, too. So we talked Mm. about the increase, and you made a great point of, is it because we're identifying it more? It could be a, a little bit of both. But having teachers understand these are the red flags and intervening immediately. There are bullying prevention programs that are more curriculum-based, and and they work, but they're somewhat fragmented. So going at a systems-level approach of all students, all teachers, this is the culture of respect, and these are the things with which we operate within the school is usually the best way to start. One of the things that stood out to me about the data coming out of New Jersey is that the majority of the complaints Um, come from middle schools. And I want to hear from you, Jess, and then if you could parse the the data, Shannon, a little bit. um, What is it about this point in adolescence that were you seeing literally half of Hmm. the bullying incidents come from middle schools? Well, I have a lot to say because I have a middle schooler. Uh (laughs) And I will tell you, developmentally, they're going through a switch of identifying and kind of modeling what they're or using as a model what their parents do Mm -hmm. and trying to find their space with their peers and that will continue for the rest of their life so it's that like I'm trying to figure out who I am as a person and I have all these peer models and maybe I want to fit into this group so I'm going to go along with the group Um, very similar to what we talked about with going and targeting the bystanders middle schoolers are going to go with their peers they're going to try and figure out kind of where they are they're experimenting totally yeah and shannon could you add anything to that from the focus groups and what you've heard from middle schools in new jersey so we during our focus groups we did hear from students parents caregivers and stakeholders um expressing the need for additional support additional training additional resources for for not just educators to be trained, ensuring that there is anti-bullying curriculum in the state of New Jersey. It's required to have anti-bullying curriculum in the state of New Jersey and all of the schools. And being able to make sure that parents and students have identified resources, right? Because what the task force tied that into, what we're talking about, is creating welcoming, inclusive climate and culture for all students. The climate Mm. and culture sets the tone, right? And so when schools, when students when caregivers, when educators have the tools that they need to create welcoming, inclusive, safe climate and culture for all students, it helps build those foundations, right? To help not just prevent HIB, but be able to help create 
welcoming spaces where students have empathy, understanding, respect, and know how to do decrease and ex uh, escalation if they do have a conflict with each other. And we talked about that in the report and in our recommendations. But I will have to say that working on these issues of school climate and culture, investing in that, in pre the prevention and um, in intervention of HIB also requires funding. And that was one of the main asks in our report that we are asking the state to look at dedicated funding to be able to help create these climate and cultures and address HIP across our schools and communities. And can a quick follow up to you, Shannon, and specifically middle school, though, because I, I do I have a, a, a niece who in eighth grade was horrific because of bullying. And I, and I wonder if there's a special way or an additional and, and what you saw specifically in middle schools, because more like half, in some cases, more than half of the bullying incidents happened there. Well, within middle schools, right? That's also talking about, again, bringing it down on the level. Sometimes within the past five, 10 years, looking at how do we respond to student conflict, how do we respond to HIB, has been maybe from a lens that has been, uh, the using terms are now outdated, like the perpetrator um, and the victim. Um, but you know, instead of looking at a more holistic approach, that whole climate and culture, right? How are we mm -hmm. creating spaces for those students as a whole? And starting not just when they get into middle and high school to have these conversations, hmm. taking uh, it down to pre-K, day one, it. when got a student it. enters in the classroom about what that means. I wanna read in some comments and questions from our audience. And by the way, if you wanna join this conversation, about bullying in schools here on Studio 2, you can give us a call, 888-477-9499. Our email is studio2 at org. Comment from Luann in Glenside. Uh, Luann's a bus driver and said, parents don't discipline mm -hmm. their children mm -hmm. anymore. Luann sees that as a root cause. Uh, Mike says, we demonize children uh, who commit violence, but how many of them have been victims of bullying does the bullying also lead to violence, not just suicide? Is that a potential root mm. cause of school violence? Um, so uh, Jess, feel free to respond to any of that, but I also just wanted to ask, um, when you talk about the roots of bullying, one thing that you'll read is that it happens across cultures, actually happens across species. We see this in some primate species. And you do sort of get to wondering like, can we eliminate this from uh, from human society we're very social creatures obviously um and like what are the limits because it might just be like so inborn that that it feels inevitable sometimes mm -hmm. uh, how do you confront that in your research and when trying to convince folks i guess to, to really invest in interventions sure i think context always matters in terms of the environment that you are in. And if you, I think, developmentally very early on, you learn those pro-social skills. We have interventions in schools where we reinforce appropriate pro-social skills. We get away a little bit from punitive practices. There should be consequences. We should identify bullying when it is occurring, and there should be consequences to it. But those punitive practices of just saying, okay, well, maybe this should be a suspension doesn't teach the behavior mm -hmm. that we are looking to teach. So I do think if we focus on climates and cultures, because we know there can be bullying in the workplace, too. Yeah. So if we start almost at pre-K and then work our way up so we become a society less likely to um, engage in this behavior. And related to that, seeing the increase following 
let's say something like COVID, which we know so many children experience some sort of trauma, we, we know that there is a trauma history typically in kids that engage in bullying. Can I follow up on that too? Because a couple of folks mm-hmm. have mentioned sort of like a political, socio-political triggers to bullying that they identified. We had a caller, uh, Diane, who said uh, national politics is to blame, mentioned uh, Donald Trump specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been accused of, of course, uh, bullying some of his rivals and folks who cross him. Uh, Claire says, my kid is a member of the LGBTQ community, and I feel like national politics is enabling some of the kids to feel as if they are in the right about bullying my child. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned COVID. It, it, does the research suggest or, or, or support the idea that bullying or different types of bullying can spike based on sort of broader things happening in a culture? Yeah, especially if those broader things are traumatic or Mm. if there are certain models that may engage in that and a, a child may see that. But what I would recommend to parents is to keep the lines of communication open with your child. Ask them what's going on. Ask them what's going on in the lunchroom. Ask them who they hung out with, what made them feel good, what didn't. If you have any concerns, there's mental health professionals in the schools. There are school psychologists. Reach out to the school if you feel like your child is engaged in bullying, but also if you feel like your child may um, be um, witnessing it. And reach out and there are mental health professionals in the school that can support that. Some of the most horrifying um, examples include young people, sometimes very young, who take their own lives uh, because of bullying. I I wanna, is is there this connection with, um, between bullying and suicide? Can you talk about that? Because most times that, that, it doesn't go there. It doesn't, it isn't. As, as egregious as suicide. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you could actually make like a very clean connection, which is why it is really important to notice the signs mm-hmm. that there is bullying, because again, that's a traumatic event, and to also notice the signs that your child um, may be at risk for suicide, and then reaching out to the suicide hotline or mental health professionals if you have a concern. Shannon Cuddle, real quickly, as we wrap up this segment, uh, I did want to ask, where do you think the line should be drawn uh, with teachers and staff intervening mm-hmm. because I, I imagine there's a possibility you can sort of like over police, uh, over police yeah. student behavior. Um, but of course, we want folks to intervene when bullying is getting really bad. So in about a minute, can you give us a sense of where that line should be in New Jersey, you think? Uh, well, so the line is clear. Every every uh, education staff member, every member of that school community has a duty and responsibility to ensure that every student feel safe and welcomed. And every staff member has a duty to ensure that those students know where to go to get additional support. And that's part of that climate and culture. We don't want to create moments in fostering school climates that give the subject of messaging to students saying, you don't belong here, you don't exist, we, or we do not hear you. We want to shift that climate, we want to shift the conversation and allowing teachers, educators, all school staff members be able to have the resources they need and tools to be able to support students is so much part of doing intervention and prevention of bullying. Thank you so much. Uh, That is Shannon Cuddle, chairperson of the New Jersey Anti-Bullying Task Force. Shannon, thanks for joining us today on Studio Two. 
And we also have with us in the studio uh, Dr. Jessica Glass-Kendorsky, a psychologist and professor at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Thank you for being with us on Studio 2. Yeah, thank you. Coming up, Cherry, we're going to talk a little bit about spicy food. Yeah, why so many of us love it, like you and I. We are spicy food people, so we'll talk about that. And as a reminder, if you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, the Suicide and Crisis Hotline is 988. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome on back into Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman, Eric Cherry. We've established that you like Mm -hmm. spicy food. What is your favorite spicy food? Anything, um, I love Jamaican food. Okay. You can spice jerk that up, jerk food. chicken type food. I also like Indian food. You could turn it up. But I don't like it to be like hot, hot, burn your mouth hot. But I like it to be spicy, flavorful. How about you? I really like the Szechuan peppercorn Ooh. type of spice. You it's like do a, have. Is that like a numbing yeah, kind of sensation? A numbing. So this is, yeah, maybe we'll ask we'll our next guest about, about it. We'll I don't, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but mm-hmm. there's something different about that type mm-hmm. of spice. Um, we're going to pepper our next guest Ooh, with some questions. You like that? I do. Uh, he says, if you, you can tell if someone likes it hot by their personality. Now, maybe that's not totally surprising that thrill seekers would also like hot chilies. But why do they like it? Why does the capsaicin, what does that capsaicin do to our sensations that makes us crave it and others avoid it? Mm. And can anyone just build up a tolerance to heat? John Hayes is a food science professor at Penn State, where he studies the chemical and sensory experience of food, particularly hot food. He joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to Studio Two, John. Thanks for having me. And of course, we want to hear from you. Do you love spicy food? Do you have a favorite spicy dish? Call or email us at studio2 at whyy.org or at 888-477-9499. John Hayes, I wanted to ask you first, uh, what's the biological response in our body when spicy food hits our mouth? And how does that differ from how is it from just regular taste? Right. So that's a great question. We have a receptor in our tongue and in our throat and actually all over our body uh, that's called TRPV1. And this receptor actually just earned David Julius the Nobel Prize a couple years Mm. ago um, for uh, work discovering it. It's a molecular thermometer that we use to sense heat pain. And so evolutionarily, this exists to um, allow us to pick up noxious, painful heat. Well, somewhere along the way, In evolution, the chili plant figured out how to hijack this receptor by making the capsaicin molecule that fits in that thermostat, and it turns the thermostat down. So now at non-painful temperatures, your body gets a signal that says, ouch, that's hot. Um, Most species avoid that and uh, don't want to eat that chili plant, but humans are, are sort of unique in that we actually seek it out. Why? That's the part that, that blows my mind, question. John Hayes. I, I don't understand. This is a defense mechanism, right, that these plants have developed, and yet we still want to, or at least we tolerate um, in, in at some level capsaicin. I don't get that. Why? Right. So, you know, I think that if we look really broadly across lots of plants, they actually evolve these 
chemicals to prevent things from eating them, right? The nicotine in the tobacco plant is there as an insecticide. And yet we figured out if we smoke it, that makes us feel mm. good or various other substances that we ingest. Um, you know, we don't really, we can't set up a controlled experiment to figure out why. So we can just speculate about it. One of the arguments that's been put forth is um, this idea that when you have a bland, monotonous diet, having something that makes it a little more exciting was probably a good idea. Or if you have a bland, starchy diet, something that makes you salivate more might have made it a bit more palatable. Mm -hmm. So of we just, course, you, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry about that. The last yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that in personality, right? Here in the United States, spicy food is now ubiquitously available, but it's not ubiquitously consumed. I can reach for that bottle of sriracha if I want it, <laughs> but somebody else might not want it. And so we've shown and others have shown that this is actually related to personality traits like risk-taking and thrill-seeking. Yeah. Uh, we have an email from Greg, a native Californian who grew up eating spicy ethnic foods and enjoys them the way natives do. When Greg eats out, he asks to tell the chef to prepare it as if he would for himself at home. And he promises not to send it back. He thinks it isn't just heat, it's complexity. It's like fine wine. And I want to, yeah. I did not have that type of complexity early on in life. I did not like spicy food. In fact, I avoided it. But a lot of my friends were from the, the Caribbean. And so I developed this love for spicy food. Um, and so I want to, how do you sort of shift your palate um, you know, from a person who can't stand it to now a person who craves it. Yeah, so I think it's important to remember that our food tastes change across our lifespan, right? When we're young children, we like things that are really sweet. And we know with puberty that our liking for sweetness tends to go down. And then, um, you know, your typical 18 or 19 year old is not going to like that big, bold Cabernet and <laughs> along the way. They're going to, uh, with some lived experience, um, both get some social reward from sitting around with your friends and talking about wine and enjoying that nuance. Well, chilies are exactly the same way. Some of us grow up eating it, some of us don't, and some of us learn to like it. I didn't grow up eating particularly spicy food, and I'm a big chili head now myself. Chili so, head. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's an official label, I assume. Um, I want to ask about countering spice after mm, we perhaps that's ingest a, good one, yeah. a little too much of it. Uh, John, what, what do you think? I know milk is supposed to work. It seems like water doesn't work. What does the research say Definitely about you know putting out the flames? Right. Well, milk, certainly the folklore tells us milk works the best. And actually controlled experiments also show us that um, whole milk really does seem to work really well. It's cold. It's got a little bit of fat in there. But the classic argument has always been that that capsaicin molecule is highly lipophilic, which means it's fat-like. It doesn't like water. And so the thought was, well, it's the fat in the whole milk that helps. But there's some data out there that says skim milk actually works just as well as mm. whole milk, which doesn't really make sense if it's the fat. So um, we've been poking at this idea that maybe it's some of the protein in milk. And we actually just published a paper um, at the end of last year showing that soy milk that's high in protein also cuts the burn or that things like um, ultra filtered high protein milk actually cuts the burn even better than conventional whole milk and so it's probably some combination of that 
the fat and the protein that are both scavenging that capsaicin and pulling it away from the receptor that helps you clean up a little faster. And uh, are there upsides and downsides to spicy food? Like, is there some benefit to eating it or some issues that it can cause from eating spicy food? Yeah. Right. So if you have um, spicy food can slow you down and that could potentially be a good thing. If you're trying like many of us today to watch what we eat and you want to eat a little less, um, we know that eating speed affects how much you eat. So if it slows you down a little bit, maybe you uh, um, give your body time to catch up with some of those satiety signals and maybe not eat so much at the meal. Or um, there is some evidence in some people that taking even pills with chili powder might seem to help with uh, speed your metabolism up a little bit. But on the flip side, of course, if you eat it uh, really, really hot, like I, you know, I like to have those tears streaming down my face. And mm. when really good Korean food makes my nose run and I have to blow <laughs> my nose through the whole meal, I'm actually in heaven. Um, but the next day, it's not so pleasant. And so, uh, you know, there can be those downsides as well. So Ooh. GI distress, that is actually <laughs> provably a, a, a result a of sometimes eating too much spicy food? A hundred percent. There's an old Hungarian proverb that says, uh, good paprika burns twice. Wow. <laughs> there I can go. imagine if you have... Yeah. I'm not going to elaborate on mm. that. Uh, John Hayes, thank you so much for your time today on Studio Two. Thanks so much. John Hayes is a food science professor at Penn State who studies the chemical and sensory experience of food, particularly hot food. Um, and well, that, yeah. We, we got a reason to eat it, though, like because it speeds it up your metabolism. Uh, that makes and it perfect slows, sense to me. It slows you down, eat slower, which is good for, yeah, eating less. This Absolutely. Is, Absolutely. So we're on the right track. Let's order out today, Sherry. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> That's it for the show. Uh, be sure to follow WHYY on all social platforms. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review. Oh, yes, and rate and review. Our producers are. Keep those ratings high. (laughs) Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Besser, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Thanks for joining us. Hot stuff.